One of my favorite um, writers who's a pastor and written a number of books is John Piper, and he's written a book uh, a number of years ago called Seeing and Savoring the Savior. And um, that has become kind of a focus of my thinking when I think about worship, and this morning we're going to take a, a bit of a look at that. Um, I think you know what it means to see something and savor it. Okay? How many of you would like one? Okay, I'll take one right, well, not maybe right now, but when I'm done. I could probably eat two of them when I'm done. Or maybe it's this in the morning or in the evening. I have a different container, but that's a regular feature for my morning. And I savor that. And seeing it makes me almost taste it and kind of smell it. Or maybe you're really bad and you like something like that. You can see that and, and you can almost taste it. You can sort of smell it if you're in the mall and it's Cinnabon and you can smell it coming down the street. Worship is really a process of seeing God and then savoring Him, appreciating Him, and then in some way explaining that. And we could look at it this way. We see, we savor, we show. Or maybe another way would be as we know, we treasure, and then we proclaim. It's pretty tough not to say something about an excellent steak or a good cup of coffee or a wonderful dessert. We proclaim it. Maybe we display it in some way. We praise it. And in worship, we do all of that for the glory of God. Um, how do we do that? How can we make that happen? Um, how can we see God's glory more and more? How can we have a fresh look at Him? How can we get deepened insight so that we're moved to appreciate and express and proclaim? A song we just sang, I think it said, Give us a greater glimpse of a never-changing God. That's part of this seeing and savoring. So we're going to look at this, and particularly at one verse in 2 Corinthians that helps us see this. This is from 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. A lot of words there. We'll go back and look at them. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. First of all, I think we learn from this passage that God intended us, He intends us, all of mankind, to see His glory in Christ. We know that because we've been told that the God of this world has blinded us, blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing that. And if Satan is keeping them from seeing that, then obviously that is something that God wants us to see, and He knows that. God intends us to see His glory in Christ. We also know that God also enables us to do that. Um, whoops, wrong button. Let's go the other way. It says, God, who, let, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, Satan has tried to blind us, but God has acted and to do that, he shines something in our hearts, enables us to see, makes it apparent to us, 
so that we can begin to see His glory in Christ. God's glory, said in these verses, is revealed in Christ. Christ is the image of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, the writer of Hebrews tells us. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Paul says in Colossians. And then he says later, for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So God's glory is revealed to us in Jesus Christ because Christ is the image of God. When we see Christ, we see God. We also see that God's glory is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Kind of an interesting way of putting that. I think what it means is when we begin to comprehend who Jesus is, then we can more fully understand who God is. Now, the aim of the gospel, I believe, and from this verse, is more than simply providing forgiveness of sin, more than simply getting us a pass out of hell. Uh, though for some of us that may be all we think of it, but it's much more than that. The aim of the gospel seems to be that not only will we be saved, but we'll see God's glory. God is desirous for man to see and appreciate and understand His glory because as we do that, we'll find a greater joy than we can ever imagine, and that's one of His desires for us is that we will see Him and enjoy Him. He accomplishes this by shining in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So that seems to be an even greater aim for God for us, not simply that we'll be saved, but that we'll see His glory in Christ and begin to enjoy and appreciate that. Now, as a result of that, this is what my goal is for us this morning, that we'll see and savor three facets of the glory of God that are seen in Christ. There's many. We could look at many. But we're going to focus on three today. The first one is the glory of His power. We'll be looking at His power. The second one is the glory of His suffering. We'll see why His suffering is glorious and savor that a bit. And then we'll look at the glory of His mercy. Paul said later in 2 Corinthians, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. So God's desire is that as we see His glory in Christ, we not only enjoy that and appreciate it and worship Him, but we become changed people. He removes our blindness, the blindness that Satan has put on us, and then he moves those of us who have become believers, have seen the gospel and received it. He moves us to continuing process of sanctification from one degree of glory to another. We're being changed to become more and more like the image of God in Christ. And that is part of the whole process of worshiping him. So let's look at the glory of his power. Let's see that and take a few moments to savor it. Christ's power is limitless. That's part of its glory. And why is it limitless? It's limitless because Christ is the creator. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And as the creator, he has limitless power over his creation, both 
the universe and the people within it. We also know from Scripture that that limitless power can bring about good or it can restrain evil. God in Christ uses that power to either bring about good, make good things happen for people, or to restrain evil from happening. And I'd like us to listen here to a few Scripture vignettes, I guess you could call them, that describe for us, that picture for us in the life of Christ, his limitless power. When evening came, Jesus said to the disciples, Let's go to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along in a boat. A furious squall came up, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and asked, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight. As Jesus approached the town gate, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother and she, a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and he touched the coffin, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. A man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire and into the water. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked convulsively and violently left him. The boy looked so much like a corpse, a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but his disciples did not realize it was him. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Then throw your net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Sometimes Christ withheld his power. He restrained it, and he 
could have used it to prevent evil or to punish evil that was happening, but he didn't always do that. Listen to these examples of his restrained power. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and he rebuked them, and they all went to another village together. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Some of the Jews said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one man that I kiss, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men then stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. Do you think that I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple in three days and build it up, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we've all experienced God's power in some way, either restraining evil or restraining something good from happening that we thought should happen. We just heard examples of that. How do we respond? How do we savor that? How do we uh, appreciate God's power in those situations, particularly when things don't turn out the way we think they should? One way, as I think, is to consider Job. If you remember... God allowed Satan to stretch out his hand against Job. He said, you can do that, just don't touch your 
touched Job himself. And so we know he had four disasters came right on the tail of each other. His animals were killed by some invaders. Fire burned his sheep and his herdsmen. Camels and and servants were killed by Chaldeans, and then ultimately a tornado came through and killed all of his sons and daughters. All of those were evidence of God's power in some way, either to bring about evil or to keep from restraining evil. We have the possibility of two responses. We could be like wife, the wife of Job. What did she do? She said to Job, curse God and die. And sometimes we're tempted to curse God. Or we can take the response of Job. This is what we read. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Consider your response to God's power in Christ, whether it is that limitless power or the restrained power. Are you tempted at times to curse, curse him or curse the circumstance? Do you grumble? Do I grumble? Do you begin to doubt that God is really good or that uh, he's really watching over you? Or do you worship? When we... His power is exercised for our good, like the raising of the widow's son, or when it's restrained and we suffer, like Job felt it. What do we do? Do we worship? Another aspect where we can see the glory of God in Christ is in his suffering. I think it's good to keep in mind that Jesus possessed what we might call infinite goodness. Why was that? Well... First of all, of course, he was without sin. Told that several places of Scripture that Jesus, being God's Son, was perfect, and there was nothing that deserved any kind of suffering. We're also told that he was pleasing to God his Father. In a number of places, God spoke this, said that what he is and who he is, what he's doing is pleasing to me. Also, very clearly loved by his Father in a unique way. And then he was glorified by his Father. Now, some of those things are sort of true of us. None of us are without sin. Occasionally we are pleasing to the Father. We know we're loved by the Father, perhaps. Um, We're also to be glorified one day by the Father. But with all of this being his perfection, and still uh, he suffered. And he suffered in a number of ways. First of all, he suffered injustice at the hands of men. He was probably, not probably, he was the only person in human history who did not deserve anything that he received. All of us at times deserve what we get as the consequence for what we've done, but Jesus did not. His injustice at men's hands was totally undeserved. We see that very clearly in the book of Isaiah and the prophecy there, look at these words that I've highlighted. He was despised, rejected. Do you like to be despised and rejected? A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Some of us have pain, and that's something that 
uh, we know we'd like to be rid of. I have a family member that suffers pain chronically, constantly, and there's no solution. Some of you know that. We held him in low esteem. The God of the universe incarnate was not considered worth much in people's eyes. He was pierced, physically pierced. He was crushed, physically crushed. He was chastised when he was perfect. He was wounded. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Oppression and judgment against him. He was taken away. He could have stopped it, but he was taken away. He was cut off of the land of the living, and his grave was with the wicked. All of those things were injustices that he received at the hands of men. We could add things like he was spit upon, he was slapped, punched, scourged, mocked by soldiers, crowned with thorns, taunted, and mocked on the cross. He was betrayed and denied by his own disciples. He also suffered at the hands of God, though. Not only did he suffer at men's hands, but he suffered at God's hands. And we know from Scripture that this was intentional. It was planned by God. Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was the Lord's will. And Peter in Acts tells the people, Jesus was handed over to you by God's, and the words in one translation, I think, the ESV is, by God's deliberate plan. Jesus was handed over because of that, because of God's plan deliberately. He was punished and stricken by God. He was forsaken by God. You recall those words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also suffered because of the good it would accomplish. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he would bring us to God. He suffered for the good that it would bring to you and me. This totally righteous person took on all of this suffering so that he could bring us into relationship with God. Then Jesus in his prayer says that, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. That was another good. The glory of God was one good that was accomplished by Jesus' suffering. All of it that Jesus did on the cross was for the good of God, that his glory would be seen and praised. And then he suffered without retaliation. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he could bring us to God. And then later in that same passage, Peter says this, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Suffered without retaliation. How can we contemplate that and turn that into worship? Peter wrote these words that follow. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But, and this was the response, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we anticipate or look at Christ's sufferings, apprehend what he did there, contemplate on that, one of the things that should come to our mind is the recognition that he continued 
entrusting himself to God. And that was a glorious thing. And it's a way that we can, in the same way, respond uh, and bring glory to God by the worship of our lives, by entrusting ourselves to God when we suffer unjustly. Another thing we can do is to stop grumbling. Stop grumbling about the difficulties that God's calling and purposes on our lives demand. God places us in places that, at times, cause us to experience difficulty, cause us to suffer. And just as Christ's suffering was planned by God, some of our suffering is planned by God as well. And to not grumble is part of our response. It might be the misunderstanding of other people, rejection of other people, persecution of other men. Peter wrote again, If when you do good and suffer, you endure... It's a gracious thing in the sight of God. God commends you for that. He's honored by that and he's pleased with that. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. We've been called to suffer just as Christ has been called to suffer. I'd like us to hear the story of one woman's suffering and her endurance. Perhaps it can cause us to appreciate what Christ went through and to be encouraged to do the same for ourselves. Hasni doesn't know who she can trust anymore. Her father? He kept her locked up for three months after finding an old, worn copy of the Old Testament in her bedroom. Her mother? After telling Osni she wished she had never been born, her mother gave Osni's brothers permission to do whatever was needed in order to remove this Christian influence from the family. Osney's own husband? He regularly beats her, calling her a curse. Yet, somehow Osney has managed to keep her focus on God and continues sharing her Christian faith and passing out copies of the New Testament. This, despite the fact that she has been terribly mistreated by both family members and religious zealots in her hometown. In Chechnya, where she lives, it is an unwritten law that people should not read the Bible. City officials recently took her copy of the New Testament, burned it, and sent her to an Islamic medical center where mullahs read the Quran to her over and over in a futile attempt to exercise the evil spirits. What was Azni doing all this time? Fasting and praying. A friend later said Azni told him that she felt God protecting her and experienced peace in her heart. But how much can one woman be expected to endure? Once, she escaped Chechnya with her children, but her family found them, kidnapped the children, and brought them back home. Fearing she might never see her children again, she returned home and was promptly locked up again. Another time, she called her friends in another region to tell them of the threats against her life. What she didn't know was that her phone had been tapped. Later, her brother called these believers, furious with the Christian influence they had on his sister. In a fit of rage, he threatened to ruin their lives if they did not leave Osni alone, complaining that having a Christian in our family causes us many problems. Osni's friends wouldn't back down, but they haven't been able to reach her. They now fear the worst. We're humbled and we admire a woman like Osni for her endurance of suffering, and yet we realize that she's just doing what her Lord did, And as we look at his suffering and endurance, we should be humbled even more to worship.
like us to read together a prayer that asks God to make us sensitive to this. I hope you can see it large enough. Let's read it together. Gracious Father, let us not drift numb and blind and foolish into vain and empty excitements. Life is too short, too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst. Heaven is too great, hell is too horrible, eternity is too long that we should putter around on the porch or eternity. O God, open our eyes to the greatness of the suffering of Christ and what they mean for sin and holiness and hope and heaven. We fear our bent to trifling. Make us awake to the weight of the glory of the glory of Christ's incomparable sufferings. One more facet of the glory of God that we see in Christ is his mercy. Um, you could say, I think, that Christ came primarily to earth to show God's mercy. God's justice is critical, but it seems as we read Scripture that Jesus came even more to show God's mercy. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, though He will someday, but that the world might be saved. If God had simply wanted justice, He would have come and judged the world. In fact, He might have judged it long ago. He could have judged the whole world at the fall. He could have sent Satan to hell at the fall. But it seems that his mercy was extended for other reasons beyond his justice. Christ's death allowed God to show mercy to us and still be just. I think you know the verse in Romans that says, God sent Jesus to die as a substitute for our sin so that he might be just, that would be a picture of his justice, and the justifier, that would be his mercy, because he not only was able to keep his justice in order, but he could extend then mercy to us. He would, might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. But God's purpose in redemption was more than simply saving us. God wanted the universe to see the glory of his mercy for eternity. And we see this a lot in the writings in the New Testament of Paul, but one beautiful example is in Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, raised us up with Christ, and this is the reason, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness, which would be mercy, toward us in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, for all eternity, he could show how rich, how immeasurable, how great, how glorious his mercy is. Jesus was an example of this. His gracious glory, or his mercy, can be seen in a number of ways. 
He showed mercy to the suffering, and we've heard a little bit about that when we talked about his limitless power. Ten lepers were healed on a road. The demoniac was had the demons cast out. The Canaanite woman who had a demon-possessed daughter uh, found her daughter delivered. Crowds were fed because of the mercy, the compassion of Jesus. Jesus had compassion. He felt mercy towards the lost multitudes in Israel. God showed mercy through Christ to sinners, mercy to tax collectors. Pharisees grumbled about Jesus' association with them, but Jesus did it because he had compassion, he had mercy for them. We read in the story of the prodigal son, while he was a long way off, his father, who I think is a picture of our Lord, our Heavenly Father, his father saw him and felt compassion. He didn't exercise justice first. His compassion caused him to run and embrace and kiss his son. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He saved us, sinners, because of his mercy, not because of our goodness. We also know from Scripture that God not only did that in Christ in the past, but he continues to show mercy to us as believers, those of us who have come to know Christ. You're familiar with this passage. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Now, why is that important? Because we can experience his mercy. He says, let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The gracious glory of Christ's mercy that was evident in his life continues. It's available to us when we come to Christ, come to God through Christ's work on the cross and his work at the throne of God now. Now, how can we savor that? How can we think about that and see it as be even more beautiful. First of all, if we've never put our trust in Christ and experienced His forgiveness, that would be the first way. His mercy is extended to us. He has provided Christ as a substitute for the guilt of our sin. And by putting faith in what He did on the cross, we can have forgiveness. We can experience the greatest mercy that God has extended to us. If we're believers, we've already experienced that forgiving mercy of Christ at the cross. We can do a couple of things. We can recall and savor Christ's past mercy. Think over your life. The last few years, if you can remember places, times, maybe it's significant events farther back, where you have experienced God's mercy. Recall that. Savor those good moments and express to Him your love. You can also recall His mercy to you in painful experiences where He restrained His power and allowed you to go through a difficult time and as you yielded to His plan for your life, you later saw that that was for your good. 
and that you experienced good from his restraint of power, that his mercy in that case was to not solve your problem immediately. Perhaps that's the past mercy that you can recall. And then, of course, you can boldly receive Christ's continuing mercy. You can, with confidence, not hesitantly, but with assurance, draw near to the throne of grace and receive that mercy again. The same mercy that Jesus extended while he was on earth is now extending to us from heaven. Receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I hope you have a bulletin. If you don't, maybe someone next to you. In the bulletin on the notes page, you'll find a couple of prayers there. And I felt that these needed some contemplation as you read them, that maybe reading them off the screen or reading them out loud would distract you. So I put them in there, and I'd like us to take just a few moments in silence. The first prayer is a prayer of confession about our need of mercy. And the second prayer is a prayer of petition that we might not only receive His mercy, but we would become vessels of His mercy, examples, bringing glory to the Father because we behave in the same way that the Son did by being a person who extends mercy. So take a few moments, read those through, meditate on them, pray to God as you read them through, and then in a few moments we'll sing our final song. So we've seen the glory of God through Christ's power, through his suffering, through his mercy. Anytime we take a look at Christ like that, um, just reveals how amazing he is. So let's, let's stand and sing about that. Would you pray with me? Father, as we 
have looked at your son this morning and we've just sung these words, you are amazing. We recognize that what we have seen is still just the surface of your glories in Christ and that the more we look at him through Scripture, the more we reflect on that, the more we see, the more we savor who he is, the more wonderful he becomes, the more glorious he is. And we ask that we would be faithful to do that, and that as we see him and as we understand his glories, that we would be those who imitate him, we would be those who follow him, we would be those who bow before him, yield our wills, our spirits, our lives, in the midst of all our circumstances, to see him as our Lord and our glorious Savior. We pray it in his name. Amen.